Uh, let's just open in prayer. Uh, God, we thank you that your word is full of promises for us. And as this song reminds us, the promises exist even in our past failures. Because we know that the promises aren't determined by who we are, but they are fulfilled because of who you are. So, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We ask you to be part of our message, that you will be part of our meeting. And take these humble reflections, God, and speak into the hearts and the very souls of those who will hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, that was some worship service. It was great. Um, I wanted to talk about, when I got asked to speak, I was like, great, I'm going to get in before they tell me what I have to speak about and make something up first. Because when I first heard this year we were going to be focusing on wherever, whenever, be like Jesus, I had a really sinful response. And, and my response was, I could think of so many people that needed to hear that message. And I was thinking, I've got to get this guy here, I've got to get this guy here, because they all need to hear that they need to wherever, whenever, be like Jesus. And when I reflected on it for myself, I was like, huh, wherever, wherever, whenever, be like Jesus. And my response, if it works this time, was, here comes a whole lot of suspense, right? Whatever. Wherever, whenever, be like Jesus, whatever. Uh, this is going to be a great thing, giving me heaps of ammunition on what to tell other people to do in their life. After all, I've got it sussed, haven't I? But I've really been challenged by it, and I love the theme. When it comes down to it, though, we need some tools, because if we are to wherever, whenever, be like Jesus, we've got to rethink some stuff. So I've been really challenged on this thought. If you're going to wherever, whenever, be like Jesus, you've got to get over yourself. Because there's so many things in our own lives that if we are to walk truly in faith, we've got to forget about and move through something that doesn't make sense. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring in a few contexts that hopefully one of them will grab you, if not more. So the first context is sport. Anyone? It's a good thing. Okay. I'm going to give you on one of these, I know. I've tried to be eclectic. So hopefully you'll get the sport analogy. If not, we'll talk about the past, just for a little bit, because I don't think we should dwell on the past. We should learn from the past and move forward. Understand who we are through the past, which is our papa, and how that all works through. I'm going to talk a little bit about food. Does that help anybody? Yeah. Okay, and we're going to head into lunchtime soon, so food's going to be good. And the one that you'll all hang out for is uh, the study of sociology. And I know that you're waiting for that one, but I've got to get through the other three to get to why sociology is really important. Who's hanging out for sociology? Come on. This is an important message. Sociology, you're going to go, huh, I'm going to go away, and I guarantee half of you will go away and study this thing that I'm going to talk about. I don't know, that's, that's a prophecy, we'll see. I'm going to introduce myself first, and, and I think that a pa- I've heard the saying, a pastor, and I'm not a pastor, so I'm not even going to go down that path, but a pastor without a burden is not really a pastor. So a pastor has to have something that they really, really deeply are passionate about. But I'm a principal, I'm, I work at a school, 
And I'm passionate about, as an educator, equipping our young people, that generation, for the future that they will go into. And I think it's a really fulfilling task. But what really makes it fulfilling is being a Christian educator. And the idea behind a Christian educator is that it's not just dealing with knowledge and filling ahead with something so they can go out and get a career. But we want our kids to know whose they are. We want them to know who they are. We want to know why they are. And we want them to know where their strength comes from. So it's filling heads with knowledge and giving them all the tools to see them come out in a way that would benefit the kingdom. Identity is a major issue. Who you are is, is a big black mark against society at the moment. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. But this is really when I thought about it with my uh, leavers last year and we were talking about stuff. Forget about all the education you've received, the scores that you've got in your grades and all this sort of stuff. And we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the reason we talked about that is because there was something inside these young people who they faced something in the natural that would be ridiculously daunting and they didn't freak out at all. So their past knowledge of fire, because I'm sure one or two of them had burned themselves in fire in the past, would have told them this is not a good situation to be in. Their understanding of physical phenomenon would make one or two of them question whether this was going to be a good next move. Moving into a fiery furnace to stick up for promises that God has made and stick up for their God wasn't in the norm a good move. And I'm, I'm reminded, so for, for our kids, we want them to know that they can have absolute confidence in who God is and what His promises are and that when they move into these places that don't make sense in the normal that we shouldn't rely on our past to determine whether this is going to work because God is doing a new thing. I think of Peter when he's standing on the side of a boat and God calls him, Jesus calls him onto the water. I'm wondering what things went through his mind just then. He's like, huh, walking on water, Jesus, it's okay for you, I know you are the Son of God. What are the things that he knew from the past? Last time I went in water, I just swam. Uh, last time, everything I know about water is that I can't stand on it. Everything I know, my past has told me, this is not going to work. But as he kept his eyes on Jesus, what happened? Jesus and the, the, the physical phenomenon and everything from the past didn't matter anymore because he was doing something with Jesus. So that is my burden. Not just that our young people are educated with a whole lot of knowledge, but they have absolute confidence in who they are, whose they are, why they are, and that they will go and do something remarkable for his kingdom. What's that got to do with today? Okay, so if we're going to wherever, whenever, be like Jesus, we've got to get over ourselves. And the things we know and the things we thought we knew and what our past was, and we've got to think in a new way. I love this verse from Luke 9, uh, 23, I think it is, and it talks about if anyone wants to follow me, they must deny themselves daily and take up their cross and follow me. And I'm hoping to unpack that through those four contexts. But I like the way the message presents it. Anyone who intends to come with me must let me, must let me lead. 
You're not in the driver's seat. I am. It's a good way to put it. The driver determines where we go, how fast we go, whether it's safe, whether we indicate, whether, whether, whether. Jesus is the driver. We've got to get out of that driver's seat, have confidence in him, and allow him to take us places that we didn't know we could go before. First context I want to bring it into is sport. Hooray! Who knows that a life of Christ is one of partnership? And sometimes, many of us look at our life in Christ and our partnership together, and we think that the strength of the team is determined by the weakest member. And we think in volleyball terms. Because in volleyball, when the ball comes over the net and there's me and Jesus there, Jesus is a fantastic volleyball player. Let's say he can walk on water, he can fly. So he can spike that thing, he can recover a whole lot of stuff. But every time the ball comes over the net, it's like in slow... Have you played volleyball before? It's like a great sport when the ball's going to everybody else and then suddenly it's coming straight to you. And you're like, okay, this could go all sorts of places. And it does. So it comes flying over, you do the right things, but the ball takes off somewhere else. And the other volleyball player never gets the opportunity to spike it and attack and do the defense and do all the other stuff. But every time the ball comes over the volleyball net, you've got this high-risk situation. Either Jesus is going to pick it up and pass it to you, and then you've got to somehow got to set it back to him. But then what you do is very much determined on what the final outcome is. So in volleyball... The strength of a team is greatly determined by the weakest player in the team. Hold that in your head. So that's volleyball. A better analogy is basketball. Who knows that I could take on any two people in this whole room on basketball and win without a doubt if the other person I was playing with on my team was Shaq O'Neal. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Shaq O'Neal. So when we think about basketball, the strength of a basketball team is greatly determined by the strongest member in the team. I see Simon there. We play rugby together. I have a little job in rugby, and that is to try to be annoying and steal the ball off people and get it to Simon. And Simon is fast. I am not. I get the ball to Simon. We score tries. Is that right? That's it. It's a team thing. The strength of our team is determined by Simon, who is our captain. How'd you go yesterday? Not bad. I don't know. The Blues won yesterday. So how, what does not bad mean? That's crazy. So when we think about what we can do as partnership, in partnership with Christ and His promises, so often we look at it and we go, oh, that's all very good. I know Jesus has got His stuff sorted out. But what about me? I don't have all those things together. But if we're going to wherever we never be like Jesus, we've got to get over ourselves and stop thinking that what we bring to the team is what makes the team successful. Being in the team with Jesus is what makes the team successful. The past. I think when they were walking around Jericho, someone might have thought... I feel like I've walked around things before and nothing happened. Yeah? 
And, and Jesus has this great, you know, God has this great promise for them, and he gives them a plan. It doesn't make sense, but yet my past is starting to determine whether or not I believe he can do something in the future. For me, when I was at school, at, in the olden days, we, I did really well in accounting and maths, and I failed off miserably at English. And I think it was because every question they asked on the English exam, I knew what they were looking for without them writing it. I didn't have to read them, I just wrote stuff. It was brilliant stuff, but it wasn't what they were asking for, so I didn't get the points for it. So my first year, School C English, I bombed out with like 38%. For maths, I got 99%. What's God going to use me for in the future? In seventh form, I got bursary, I got the bursary... The, the high school scholarship bursary thing for accounting because I got the top score in accounting. Obviously, God had everything sorted out and my life would be of use to him using numbers. And I know enough numbers that know the second time that I did English uh, for school C math, I passed with 46%. Knowing numbers, I don't feel like that was really a pass. But I'll take it like a gimme, like you do a, a golf shot and it's close. And you're like, oh, it's gimme. It's close enough. So if I was to focus on what I was good at and go, surely that means God's going to use me in this way, I would have lost the plot because God's using me in communication when I hated communicating when I was young. I didn't know what I was... I, I, I freaked out when I had to talk in front of people. I couldn't write. And now... People want me to write in magazines and stuff, and I'm loving it because we have an incredible message to share. So God takes something that was a strength and doesn't necessarily use it, but he can take a weakness, and he can take that weakness from the past, and you're going, but, 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 I couldn't, and I wasn't, and I was no good at it, and he can flip that on his head. He can use that as your key ministry area. However, you've got to get over yourself. If you want to, wherever, whenever, be like Jesus, you've got to get over these things that you thought you were good at and allow God to fulfill his promises that he has in your lives. And it might not make sense. Which brings me to my next point. You still there? Okay. Who knows that they have totally sorted out what good eating is and what bad eating is? Who's got that sorted out? I had it totally sorted out. If you're going to wherever, whenever, be like Jesus, you've got to forget about the rules of the past and understand that things might be different in kingdom work. Now, this isn't kingdom work, but it's an interesting point, and it'll emphasize what I'm talking about before or later. Something. Um, okay, so let's talk diet. Okay, so for a start, uh, when I've thought about dieting lots. Hasn't done much. But my real wrestle is, I really know, who knows that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And within that body, the Holy Spirit dwells. Who knows that? Who's got the Holy Spirit living inside their body? I was committed to making sure that the Holy Spirit had the most rooms. <laughs> and it had the biggest real estate. And that that Holy Spirit would not want to leave me no matter what happened because it was a comfortable place, right? So I was convinced that I was doing the right thing by the Holy Spirit. Until 
just over a month ago, my brother, who's younger than me, had a heart attack. And I got this big wake-up call. I thought, okay, well, big temple, dead temple. Small temple, operating temple. And it wasn't a much of a discussion, but I didn't want to do the whole diet thing and follow this plan and be hungry and sacrifice and all this sort of stuff. Who's done diets and you're just like miserable? Like I wanted to be inspirational to people and I couldn't talk to people if I was just hungry all the time. Hey, you going, I'm, hu- I'm hungry. Would you feed me? But it has to be like broccoli or lettuce. So I didn't want to be that kind of, I've got to lose weight stuff. So. so I started a different diet that was totally different to everything that I have learned about eating before. It's a high-fat diet. Men, you're going to love this. It's a high-fat diet. It's a low-carb one, which is an interesting part of it, and high-protein. So think meat with heaps of blue cheese on it and no fries. That's okay. You can get over the no fries. The meat with the cheese is good. Anyway, so I thought I'll give it a shot. I've got to do something. It's not working the way that it is. And in the last five weeks, I've lost eight kgs. I know. But I feel really bad saying lost because I remember that Ray was talking about when Mary and, Jesus, Mary and Joseph lost Jesus and they were really worried about him. And so they were searching everywhere for this lost thing. And, and I'm just like, that stuff is lost. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm hoping that that stuff will take its friends with it, take some more. And I'm actually praying that God will cast that lost eight kgs into a swine of pigs so that I can fry them up and eat them for breakfast because then I get my high-fat meal and it's, it's a good thing, right? Talk to me afterwards. I'm like a, a high-fat evangelist now. I love this stuff. So that every morning the house stinks of bacon. I'm happy. I'm losing weight. It's all good. Anyways, where are we going with this? Okay, so you've got to change the way you think because this whole diet thing, I had been taught for so long, the whole diet thing was about no fat, cutting all the fats in your diet, and eating lettuce. And it's not. For, it can be, but for me, well, it doesn't work. So I have to rethink and reprogram my brain. Isn't our Christian walk full of things that don't make sense, like rules that don't make sense? Jesus says, uh, if you want to be first, you must be last. Well, I'm sorry, that doesn't actually make sense in the phenomenon physical world. Jesus says, whoever wants to be the greatest must be the least. The Bible teaches us that we cannot outgive God. Now, I did accounting, as I said, and it doesn't make sense that the more you give, the more you receive. It's not a physical phenomenon that works in our world, but in kingdom phenomenon... He does something different that is countercultural. Who's excited about that? Because I think, like Romans says, do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed, but by the transforming and renewing of your mind. We need to rethink what good and bad is. Not good and bad, but what works and what doesn't work. Let me just check I've covered off everything. I feel like grace is an issue because it doesn't make sense that grace would work 
if we're trying to get people to understand a life in Christ. But we've got to commit to the plan. I can't, on this diet that I'm on, I can't decide to do it for breakfast and then do something else for lunch and then at least two out of three ain't bad. Meatloaf told me that. So for dinner time, I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to pick up all the fries again. It's about committing wholeheartedly to it and trusting the system to make sure that the system works, even though I don't necessarily understand the system. And that's what our walk in Christ is. If you want to, wherever, whenever, be like Jesus, forget about all the things that you know. Well, how's it going to work financially? I've got this promise on my life. I've got a calling on my life. It doesn't make sense because financially, I'm not sure how that's going to work. I just don't have the time. I don't know where I'm going to get the time from, but I know I've got this calling on my life and I've got to do something. The kingdom of, work, of Christ works in a different way to what we think it should, where one plus one doesn't always equal two. Sociology. Who knows what sociology is? It's the study of people, society, what we hold true, what we, what we value. So I've been quite interested just recently. I found out who, who knows about secularism. We live in an incredibly secular society, and it's caused no end of trouble and I think it's the leading cause of why we've ended up with the highest suicide rate in the world for 18 to 23-year-olds. What secularism has brought is this segregation of church and society, or church and government, church and schools, church at all with anything. And so when you separate out church from our lives, being religion, being God, it ends up in this place where we can decide what is right and what is wrong. And so from secularism, we have this major issue where truth becomes relative. And so what you think is right or what you think is good or what you think is true is fine for you because that's your reality. And then someone down the road has a different belief. We're entering into a place where we're headed into what they call post-secular and it's actually something for the church to stand up and take notice on. So the, the fourth challenge is if we are going to wherever, whenever, be like Jesus, we've got to be ready because the harvest is ready and the workers are few. So here we go. Secular, the secular sort of approach to life has ended up with uh, this major issue around resilience. And having a look at a whole lot of studies that have been done for schools on what they can do to build resilience within their communities or their schools, secular, get a secular non-church people, have come up with quite common themes, saying that our schools need to teach students, if they want to build resilience, that they are a part of something bigger than themselves. This is secular research. They need to teach students and young people and older people that... The, one of the key purposes for mankind is to look out for each other. That's different to secularism. And the third thing that they have in common is that they have to teach, and students have to know, or young people have to know, that there is hope for the future. And in the absence of any one of those three things, the development of resilience is difficult, if not impossible. Now, this is secular thought. So we're entering into this post-secular place. This um, is a photo that was taken, I couldn't find the right photo, when the terrorist attacks happened in Paris. And there's the whole Pray for Paris, that was the, the magazine that printed something. And in the background, there were all these signs in Paris, people saying, 
in French, we are Christian. Uh, I've been to France, it's not a Christian nation. But they are starting in Europe to realize, this is the bigger picture, this post-secular stuff, actually having multiple realities of what truth is doesn't hold water. There's a problem when your reality doesn't match my reality and we want to just live in these separate spaces. There must be something overarching that we can all believe in. Society is starting to ask the question, what is that thing that is overarching that we can all believe in? Where is the church in this conversation? We have an answer. This is how lost these people are. Here's a big paper that's been written on it. There's heaps of them. If you Google, um, go into Google Scholar so you get some, not just some random opinions on it, but some research on it. Um, these guys are writing about post-secularism. So this guy's saying that his key task is to explore secular alternatives to secularism, ones that can gesture to the inspiring features of religious thoughts without the violence, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the paradox thus becomes to find a non-secular secularism. Well, that's interesting. And a non-religious religion. These guys are totally lost, and they're hoping that as people come out of this, oh, no, we need to have something over, you know, truth needs to be over all of us. We need to have some absolutes, which is a great place for society to get to. A whole lot of people are trying to steer it in a way that is religious but not religious. All the best. We need to have a voice in this. In the footnote of this paper that this guy wrote, which has got all this whole argument saying that, yes, we're moving into a post-secular society. However, we've just got to make sure that it's not a religious society that we're moving into. He says, today, less than 25 years later, this is after this book that supported his theory that it won't be a religious um, movement that we move into. This conviction would seem more than dubious and what provokes this skepticism is a large-scale return of religion in, parts, in great parts of the world. So he's, uh, he's, this whole paper is arguing that we're moving out of secularism, which is a place where we segregate religion and society, into a place that integrates religion back into society. But he hopes it's not, it shouldn't be a religious thing, but actually the evidence is showing that it is. And to go back to, you were just in India, I have an involvement with uh, Association of Christian Schools Internationals. They've just been contacted by someone who has church, has um, Christian schools, not Punjabi, not uh, Hindu, not any other religion, Catholic or anything like that, Christian schools in India. And they want to have a conversation on how they can align sort of things. This is one person. So the association said, no, that's fine, we'll come over. How many schools are you talking about? 5,000. Christian schools in India today. 5,000. It puts our 67 to shame. They have got a lot more people, but isn't it great? I mean, people are, people are coming back to seek something bigger that makes sense. If you're going to wherever, whenever, be like Jesus, you've got to be ready. Four things. It's not who you are when you step out of that boat into the promises that God has given you, it is not who you are that makes that possible. But so often we think that it has everything to do with me because Jesus has got it together. It's not about me. It's about who Christ is. It's about the promises that he has made. It's the promise after promise after promise that we can read about through the scriptures that have never failed. 
It is not about your past that determines whether or not you can walk on water, whether you can do that thing that God is promising and calling you into. Whether you can do that has not got anything to do with your past because in Christ you are a new creation and He has a new thing to do with you. And He's probably and possibly going to take your weakness because that's where you have the least confidence and feed into that and do something new with you. But you've got to take the step. You've got to take the step. It's not going to... One plus one is not going to work with this. I'm sure there'll be questions and some things won't match up and you'll be asking questions around finance or what about my friends, what will they think? But God doesn't ask us to seek His promises through reason. He asks us to fulfill and walk in His promises because He has never failed us yet. And lastly, we've got to be ready for this. I had a guy come into my office just this week, a non-Christian wanting, a non-Christian family wanting to enroll their child, their girl, into our school. And to me, that's like a vegetarian walking into KFC. So I'm like, hey, so really keen that you want your child to be in a Christian school, but why is that? And often with non-Christian people, we'll get the whole, oh yeah, because it's a Christian school, everyone's angels and nothing wrong will happen. And like, okay, we need to talk about stuff. Or they'll say, oh, we love the values, and it makes sense. But this wasn't about values. It wasn't about angels. Their response was post-secular. Their response was, well, we grew up not knowing God. But I don't want my daughter to grow up in a world where she just gets information put in her head with no greater purpose behind her. And I was like, how can we do this? This is great. You've got it. You, You understand where we're coming I said, you know that we're going to... This isn't like education with the side of Jesus. You know, like you go out for a restaurant and they're like, can you give me... Um, I'll get the steak, but can I get the sauce on the side a little bit? This is like the sauce all pulled into the whole meal and everything. We invade all of our education with who Christ is, who they are, what their purpose is. I said, that's going to leak into your house. And he was like, that's Okay. We don't know what the future holds, but we're keen to explore some stuff. But this is the society that is coming. And this is why I say we've got to be ready for this. Like it or not, times are changing. It's a great thing that we're moving away from the secular place. So how about you? I mean, I think in any gathering, we have people that are standing on the side of a boat negotiating things with God. God's calling you into something that doesn't make sense. And it might even be trying to exploit your weakness. God doesn't ask you to reason with Him, but that's what we're doing, trying to make sense of it. It wouldn't be called faith if everything was in line. But we have a faithful God. And He will see that promise through if you let Him. Sometimes we play on a volleyball, a basketball team with God and we see that we're winning and everything's going well, so we hog the ball. In the good times, in the bad times, our job is to get that ball back to Jesus to do His thing with our lives. 
I wonder as we reflect on how we can wherever, whenever be like Jesus, I wonder how you might be able to do that as a dad better or as a mum. What does it mean to be like Jesus as a dad? What does it mean to be like Jesus as a giver or a contributor to school, to church? What does that mean? What about be more like Jesus as a steward of the gifts that God has already given you? What does it mean to be more like Jesus as a prayer? It is, it's nice people meet on a Thursday or Tuesday night protecting, you know, praying over the church. What does it mean for you? It might not make sense. You might think, oh, there's not enough time in my week to do everything. I remember I had a quote by my bed once, and that's all it really was. Confess that sin. Uh, Where I can't remember who it was. might have been a John MacArthur. I don't have enough time in the day to not spend three hours in prayer. It's a deep thought in my mind, and I'm challenged by it, but I haven't acted on it completely. But I wonder what it means to you to wherever, whenever be like Jesus as a believer. As someone walking in faith, someone exploring the future, someone who thinks I'm too old, someone who thinks I'm too young, I don't have enough money. God doesn't put us in boxes and say, this is what you can do now. In your youth, honor God. As you get older... Help the younger generation, but don't give up on the promises God has given you. 